At Skyview, we strive to love God and others through generous hospitality and meaningful friendship. For more information about Skyview Church, please visit us at www.skyviewchurch.ca. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? I'm going to read from verse 1 through to 20, quite a long passage of Scripture. And um, not preaching on all of it. And all God's people said, Amen. Um, However, I do struggle on an ongoing basis to limit uh, how much uh, of the scripture I do read, because some of you have pointed out to me, and rightly so, that, you know, you didn't touch on that. And, um, but I feel like for the sake of the, uh, sake of the text and coherence of the text, that it's important to read uh, all 20 verses. I will in particularly be focusing on the first uh, seven verses, and then from verse 17 through to the end. But let's start uh, by reading from Ephesians chapter 5, from verse 1 through to 20. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you... There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are two major themes in chapter 5. The first is simply that of love, and particularly Christ-like love. And the second is that of worship. You have to look a little bit more closely at the text to see how it actually does address worship within the believing community. And I want to propose to you that there is a way of looking at love within this text. The context of looking at love is to look at it as being expressed in worship, being shaped in worship, being discovered in worship, being understood in worship. 
in all my attempts over the years that I've been a youth pastor to explain the concept of love, at least godly love, to young people, I have realized, as is also true in my life, that my perspectives and understanding of love are deeply challenged by what the world considers love to be. In the 12th century, Bernard, Bernard of Clairvaux responded particularly to a culture and a time that, that brought love into an erotic kind of self-fulfilling type of love. In fact, the 12th century is one of the centuries, they, they, they say, that defined, uh, by and large, how people would understand sexuality and love. In fact, the concept of adulterous love became a, a, a way of speaking about this, this passion and this excitement of love. And it's interesting that even today we seem to kind of have echoes of 12th century's understanding of love, that love is very much about a possession and passion and eroticism, and it has robbed us in our culture today of the true biblical understanding of love. Now, let me say this to make it very clear. I think that we need to be constantly immersed in worship of Jesus Christ to understand and know love. If there is something that is really important about worship together as the church, coming together every Sunday, is that we realize that Sunday worship, corporate worship, common worship, depending on where you come from, is one of the ways in which we teach ourselves to understand, participate, and experience love. If worship is for us a context for growing up, then it is also a context in which we can understand what godly love is. Are you still with me? Say amen. I want to point out a few things that Bernard, if I have it right, uh, suggested in a treatise on loving God in response to his culture. And I think this will be interesting to some of us. He said that, that there, are five, there are four degrees of love. Four degrees of love. He said that the first degree of love is loving self for one's own sake. And he defined this kind of love as kind of developing a healthy self-love, a healthy self-esteem. He said that when you love each other, and don't worry, I will get to the text for those of you who are a little worried, okay? But, but he suggested that this kind of love is an important love. It is a love that teaches us to, to, to love who we are. It is important. It, it gives us the ability to, to live our lives in part with some form of confidence. But he also suggested that when love is just simply about loving self and developing this healthy self-love and esteem, it doesn't stand up under the weight of a complex world that demands more and pushes us in ways that even infringes upon healthy self-esteem. The second thing he suggested, or the second degree of love he then talked about, in particular with Christians, he says, we, we may then get to a point of loving God, but we may love Him for our own sake. So in other words, we turn to God for what He can do for us. You know, it's interesting, as I read this, uh, uh, Bernard suggested, I like that name, Bernard. You know, Bernard suggested that this stage can last a long time. 
He says that even when God doesn't seem to give us what we want in prayer consistently and over and over, the reality is, is that we can live in this kind of adolescent stage of loving God for what we hope God will do for us for a long time. However, when we stay at this stage, we soon learn that there is more to love than simply getting from God that which we hope He would do for us. The third degree he describes is loving God for God's sake. Here he says, love develops into the intimacies of adoration. That just sounds like 12th century language, doesn't it? You know, the intimacies of adoration. He says here, we love not for what we can get out of God, but for who God is in himself. This type of love is self-forgetful love. It is where the self doesn't get in the way of adoration. It is the kind of love where we come into corporate worship with a deep sense of giving thanks to God despite our circumstances. Uh, We come into worship recognizing that He has given us so much that He is worthy and it just flows out of us. This is the kind of love that comes, as Bernard suggested, maybe later on in our walk. But he doesn't stop there. He suggests that there's a fourth degree. And he defines this as loving self for God's sake. This took me some time to figure out. You see, my thinking about love kind of took me on this trajectory that, you know, you can start by loving yourself for yourself's sake, and I can get loving God for my own sake. I can then really get loving God for God's sake. But what on earth does it mean to love self by loving God? You know what he suggests? He says that true, mature, resurrection love is mutual love. It is where we love God for the sake of God, but in doing so, we show ourselves the deepest kind of love that we need. It is the kind of love that truly transforms, where we become not more supernatural, but more human, more in love with God and healthily in love with ourselves. Now, now the reason I, I, I went 12th century with you, because I thought it was really interesting, was to, was to just simply throw this out at you. In those four degrees, where do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself in those four degrees, those four aspects of love? Uh, you know, loving self for one's own sake, loving for God for one's own sake, loving God for God's sake, or loving self for God's sake. I think it's important that you know that the three earlier stages are not replaced, but rather completed in the final stage where love becomes what God has intended. Now, when the scripture starts us off, it says, follow God's example. In some other translations, it says in verse 1, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The example for us as Christians about what true love is, is the person of Jesus Christ. 
I suggested to you that the reason the incarnation is important, God becoming flesh in the person of Christ, is because it gives us a person to relate to, not just theological facts and ideas. So in other words, most Christians, when you develop a sense of wanting to know what Christian words mean, will go to the scripture, not simply to get a philosophy or a a, a theory, but to see the actual incarnate way... that this very particular idea is expressed. And the way we do that, in love in particular, is to look at the person of Jesus. In that opening verse, it speaks of us as children of God. Does everybody, or does, uh, do you remember when, 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 when Jesus was baptized at the hand of John the Baptist? Can you just raise your hand so I don't have to retell the whole thing? Okay? So Jesus is in the, in the Jordan, and John comes and he says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You remember that? And Jesus says, for the sake of righteousness. And then the scripture defines it this way. It says the heavens open and a dove descended in the form of the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove landed upon Jesus. And this is the words that we hear from a father. This is my son whom I love in him I am well pleased. Do you know what the baptism is? The baptism is The beginning point of understanding in Christian life that godly love is spoken over us for a God who deeply loves us, not because of what we will do, but because he has made us his children through Jesus Christ. In that very spiritual experience in Jesus' life, it's like God's affirming deep within his soul this reality that you are loved. It is prior to going into the desert. It is prior to his ministry experience. It is prior to all the things that he would do, including the cross, that God speaks his love. Now I know this is not rocket science for a lot of you, and it's certainly not new news to you theologically. But let me just paint it for you this way. If you don't get that God loves you, not because of what you do or how good you are, you will never understand and experience love. At least not biblical love. But it doesn't only say that we are beloved children. It says that we are to love as Christ loved. And I thought about this, and trust me, it's going to get a little better than it is right now. So just stay with me. Is that when I struggle with this concept of love, I I think of it from my cultural bias. I think from it within my skin, within my experiences. I think of it in terms of how I was loved or not loved. And I think it blurs any kind of image. So I look to Jesus and I look at his life and I see that love for him was not just this emotional kind of feeling of receptivity, but love for Jesus was always about giving. In fact, John 3.16 puts it this way, For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave. And yet, it seems to me, in our dominant culture, that the way we understand love is by what we get. In fact, it seems to me that it is counterintuitive biblically to think of love first as something that we get. That something that, 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 that is about how I perceive, how I feel. When we start to become Christian, we start to live into a model of love that suggests love is about self-giving uh, long before it is about 
receiving. Love is about the life of Jesus. Loving like Him is about this selflessness, this focus that is less on me and more out there. But yet it seems, intuitively as human beings, the moment that we need and feel that we need more love, the, 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 the most ironic thing we are called to do is not to try and get, but it is to give. I've managed to confuse at least 85%, I'm guessing right now, by what I just said. It is interesting to me that, that when we feel like we need the most love, that we need to receive it, that if we are to love as Jesus loved, and, and I think Jesus gives us this perfect example on the cross, that the ultimate experience and knowing and, and infilling of love comes in His most self-giving on the cross. Maybe the hurdle for some of us in understanding Christian love is that we are trying to understand it from the posture of how we receive it, experience it. And yet we look to Jesus and are called to love as He does in a self-giving way. But the uh, Apostle in particular, addresses this idea of love by warning his audience. He said that Christian love runs the risk of being hijacked by certain practices. Now, I said to you before that Ephesians is one of those letters that doesn't deal with a particular problem in the community. So when it talks about sexual immorality, when it talks about greed, when it talks about these different things, it is not speaking to people who are practicing it, but warning about the way that the world was in that Gentile culture. And it is saying, as Christians, in order to love, in order to live into this love, there are some things you have to be incredibly cautious of and incredibly protective of. The first hindrance to this kind of godly love is what the Apostle points out when he says, any hint of sexual immorality. This is when love is reduced to sex. This is when love is outside the context of relationship. This is when we reduce love to a physical act that is about self-serving, receiving, gratification, but it is not within the context of a mutual respect and a relationship. You know, if you are to think about what impedes our understanding of Christ's love, and you have to think about the way in which the world sensualizes everything, I want to speak very openly to you as a male. It is hard in any given day for me to not notice and be confronted with how sexualized everything seems to be in our culture. In fact, it scares me because I have children now. And I see a young little boy who, who just, you know, my little boy, he, he's, you know, in some ways the innocence is so precious, isn't it? There, there's a part of me as a pastor and as a dad who says, I want to spare him from the corruption, man. If I can put him in a bubble and hide him away in an African village in which they praise Jesus until he's like 25 maybe, okay, let's say 35 and then come out, I, I, I would have saved him from the depravity of what he will see. You know, I, I was realizing as 
as I was even just going on the internet and looking at a YouTube clip, that, that the ad before the clip I wanted to see, it was sensual. And I said to myself, it's everywhere. This idea that love is reduced to sex uh, diminishes and infringes upon our deeper understanding of what godly love is. Because love outside of the context of relationship essentially doesn't bring us closer to intimacy. It takes us further away. Sexual immorality, instead of teaching us love, it destroys the potential for true love. If the vice of sexual immorality hinders Christian love, then the virtue is commitment in relationship. This is the reason why we propose, not we propose, but we believe what the Bible says about intimacy and sexual intimacy within the context of marriage. We believe that the only place you don't depersonalize pay people, you know when sex, when, when, you, when, when love is reduced to sex, you know what you do? You actually create a distance between you and the other and you, you depersonalize them. People become objects to be used for your pleasure. The only way that that is disrupted in Christian community is when we learn that in relationship with one another, love is defined and there's a mutual respect that comes out of that because of God's work that helps us not to be abusive in our relationships with each other, to not use one another. And so for us in the Christian community, one of the biggest challenges we have, my friends, and I don't have to to belabor this point, is the idea that we have not differentiated ourselves from the rest of the world on this very topic. Our children are confused. They are growing up in a sensualized culture in which we want the benefits of intimacy without the supporting relationship. But Christ's love was always relational. His father said that this is my son. We are told through the apostle elsewhere that we are sons and daughters of the living God. Sexual immorality is a hindrance to living into this love, but so is greed. In fact, the scripture says, let me just find my place, in verse 3, but among you there must not be any hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. What on earth does greed have to do within the context of what he's saying about love? I read some commentators and they suggest that the way to interpret greed here is greed within the context of sexual immorality. I'm not 100% convinced that's the way to read it, but I started to think about what re- greed is, looked at scripture and looked at what it taught me about greed. And you know what greed is? Greed is self-love on steroids. It is about the ability to never know when enough is enough. It is about the self. It is about wanting more, never being satisfied. It is about constantly believing that we're entitled to. That, you know, what, what greed, greed essentially does is diminishes, like, like lust and sexual immorality does, the value of others because we value ourselves more than we ought to. The vice of greed, 
prohibits us from love because love in its very definition in Jesus, in, in Christ-like love, is not about getting more, but it is about sharing more, giving more, sacrificial self-giving. At the center of greed stands I. And I, I don't think I need to belabor this too much except to say to you that I think our culture is a dominant, that this is a dominant issue within our culture. I was listening to a, a good teacher that I learned a lot from. And he said, you know, in, in, in our Western cultures, the way that we justify greed is to simply walk out our front door and to look into our neighbor's driveway. And if we see there a car that is better than ours, we can justify to moving from a Corolla to a Camry. His point was simply this. In a culture where no one draws the line on when enough is enough, it is always a slippery slope. And Christians in particular, in a dominant culture of greed, we are often no different to understanding when we are called not to consider possessing more, but to giving more. I have to be honest with you. As I considered this message, I thought, is this the way to grow a church? Is this what you want to say when you understand, Stuart, that everything in culture suggests that Christianity has to get on board with self-gratification and possessing more? Stu, do you realize that when you start to preach this way, this goes counter to what is out there today, not just in the world, but in the church, that somehow Jesus gives you access to more? You know, the, the consumerism within spirituality makes us think constantly that God has not given us enough. The consumer mentality within our own sense of Christianity constantly makes us dissatisfied, less appreciative, less thanks, thankful, and we are constantly needing more. We have to fuel the spiritual beast that the consumer culture has created within us. So we need experience after experience, greater preaching, better music, we need bigger churches, we need all kinds of things to feed in to a self-made sense of gratification. And friends, I, I, I don't know if you get this, but greed is far more abundant within the church than we think it is. It is one of the hurdles to love. To loving as Jesus loved. But there's a third thing that hinders Christ's love in the text. And it is, I've entitled it, Inappropriate Speech. The scripture defines it in the following way. There should not be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I thought to myself, what on earth? I mean, I can understand the detriments of foolish talk, of obscenity, but why is it thrown in here as a vice or a hindrance to Christian love? Uh, I think the answer comes into what the Scripture actually says should come out of our mouths. You know what it says? Instead, of course, language, instead of obscenity, instead of indecent joking, your language in Christian community, the language of love, is the language of thanksgiving. 
I don't know if anybody of you have ever gone through a process of trying to overcome a habit or being acquainted with steps programs or ways that they coach people through things. And one of the, one of the, 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 the kind of coaching mechanisms they throw in there is if you want to change a bad habit, replace it with a good habit, right? I don't think it's as casual in the scripture as that, but I want to suggest this to you. When thanksgiving is the tone of our life and the words that we speak, it will significantly reduce the opportunities to have talk that is empty, vain, condescending, and destructive. When we are filled by God's Spirit, when we are living uh, close to Jesus, when we come into worship, not to just receive, but to give to God the praise that is due His name. When, when we get to know Him and, and experience Him and participate with Him in His work, when He takes us beyond the self-love and brings us into that mutual love, folks, the language of our lives should more and more reflect thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving is not just some kind of a cheap psychological maneuver to make you forget you have problems. Uh, It is more than just a choice to count your blessings. It is a true recognition of who God is and how much He's done for us. It is an ability to thank God even when we don't get what we want. It is the ability to give praise, as the Apostle Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12, in his weakness and in his struggle when God refuses to move the thorn in his flesh. When I start to give thanks, and I, my wife introduced, I didn't introduce, no, no, I don't know how to say this, but with Anne, um, um, uh, I think actually it was Rose that recommended a book to Ruthann about a woman who wrote 10,000, 1,000, 1,000 things to be thankful for. And uh, I, I just, I heard, you know, this is what good husband, a husband does, okay guys? Yeah, I do this once a year. Well, I listened to my wife. <laughs> and when I had to buy her something, or not had to, when I was moved <laughs> to show my love to her, I combined two of her passions. She loves to read, and she desires to grow in her love of God. And I heard about this book, and I bought this book, and she just told me briefly what the premise of the book was, and that this lady decided to, to develop a healthy practice of thinking about all the things that she was thankful for in her life. And when she went through it, I guess there's a process of realization and a process that changes us intrinsically from uh, the kinds of people are always feeling in want. I think there's very good theology in songs that call us to count our blessings. But there is a deeper sense of gratitude we ought to carry as Christians that even if God does not give us all that we want, He is still worthy of all of our praise. I wonder if inappropriate speech is the vice or the hindrance, and thanksgiving is the virtue that enhances godly love, 
if we are to start giving thanks more, what would it do not only to our language, but to those around us? What would it give our children in a world that is constantly telling them that they have the right to possess more? What would it do for us if we came into worship as a community of faith, not with a sense of, I hope it's going to be good, I hope they're not going to let us down, I hope the pastor's got his act together this week, but instead come with such a deep sense of gratitude, with an intention within our hearts to give him thanks because he's given us Jesus. I have to tell you that I believe we will see in corporate worship that which is deep within our hearts. Some of us will experience the liberation of God's Spirit, freedom, victory from bondage. I believe that when we start to give thanks and we do so as a community of faith, it will be contagious and it would change the very dynamic that we so struggle in this world to overcome, that it is about me and that I deserve more. Thanksgiving should be our language, our tongue. But all of this, and I love the book Eugene Peterson wrote, and let me just say this very quickly to you. I've said this several times in the times I've preached. I read books very critically, but also very receptively. I, I, I recognize that I'm not going to agree with everything everybody writes. Amen? Can I get a witness? So when I recommend books, I say to people, read with your brain, right? Read with your heart. Discern. But I have to say to you, there's something about what Peterson brings to bear, in particular when he talks about worship, that just grabbed my heart. One of the things that I, I struggled with when I was preparing this message, I said, oh, Steve, you're going to speak about love again. People get tired of that. You know, they just love each other, you know. <laughs> you know. And, and I thought, how, how do you bring, how do you bring, how do you bring the, the kind of deep Christian meaning to it. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you actually talk about it in more than just theology and say, we have to love each other. You just love and forgive, man. Get, you know, how do you actually immerse yourself in this truth of love, this love that revolutionizes, that changes? And you know what I found is, as I studied the scripture, I started to realize that as we get down to the bottom, uh, verses 17 through to 20, uh, the, the, the apostle paints for us the context in which love is experienced. He starts to define for us a particular way in which worship helps us, immerses us, teaches us what true love is. In the culture of the East at this particular time, Dionysius was the god of wine. Did you know there was a god of wine? In the mythology, there's a god of everything, isn't there? You know? This is the god of wine. And the way to worship Dionysius was to get drunk and experience this ecstatic kind of frenzy along with others that literally brought you into a, a state of deeper communion with yourself. The, 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 the author of Ephesians says this, says, listen, instead of getting drunk and very much aware of what's happening in dominant culture at his time, he says, instead of being filled with the spirits, be filled with this spirit. And when you are filled with this spirit, are you with me? Out of your lips must come psalms and hymns. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, that's pretty cool. You I mean this idea that worship flows out of being filled by God's spirit. 
And when God's Spirit fills us, what comes out is the songs, the this, this, this things we speak over others. It is a language of thanksgiving that flows out of us. But it is also an experience that roots us in the reality of what true Christian love is. Stay with me for a second. And I hope I can, you know, sometimes I'm way beyond where I am. Does that make sense? I'm just being very honest with you. If sometimes I'm preaching something to you, it's like I'm going, let it be so in my life. You know, I'm reaching for it. So I'm going to reach this morning. You know, if sexual immorality is about personal gratification, then similarly worship can be about personal gratification. But worship within the context of the believing community is not just about gratification. But it is relational and coming together as a community. I think sometimes in worship we tend to use God like we use people. You know, worship is not about getting without participating. It is not receiving without knowing. It is not about pleasure without sacrifice. Worship is not about Jesus and his blessings without the cross and its implications. Worship roots us deeply in the intimacy of relationship with our Father and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we come to worship, we do not come to put God up there and we stay here. We come into this place with an openness allowing God to come inside and dwell. In fact, you know what I think is, I think that, 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 that if God is always distant to us and never personal to us, if we're never coming into this space of corporate worship with a sense of God, fill me with your spirit. Come close. If, if we don't come with that attitude and that humility, this, this can just be religion. This can happen for the next 10, 15 years. And depending on how well we do things, you may be interested. But if worship is about the intimate presence of God, the filling presence, it is about a lot more than just religion. It is neither about selfish consumption. You know, worship is not just about how I receive and how I get. Worship is self-giving and sacrificially so. We come for an experience or to, to have a need met, uh, you know, uh, but not to give ourselves over to Him. And then finally, worship, when it flows out of being filled with the Spirit, what will come out of us is not empty words, coarse joking, but the kind of words that build up and bring glory to God and to others. When I started this series, I suggested to you that many of our disappointments with the church is based upon what we expect and hope the church would meet within us. I suggested to you that one of the ways to grow up is to get maybe beyond our disappointments and our expectations and recognize that the church is an earthy, messy place. Sometimes there's disappointment. Sometimes there's failure. 
But like Jesus was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit conceived and filled and blessed men who became the church. And because God's Spirit is here working in that messiness, He has the ability to grow us up. This sermon series, which will conclude next Sunday, and everybody said, Amen. I know I'm looking forward to praising Jesus when it's done. Uh, for good reasons. One of the things that we, can, we, can, we tend to do in, in, in our churches a lot, I think, I just speak personally out of my own experience, is we, we want to know what the application is. We want to know, okay, so Steve, you know, you spoke about love, and you're like, okay, just tell us how we do it now, you know, kind of thing. Uh, give us the pragmatics, give us them. So I'm going to indulge you. I'm going to tell you what I think as a pastor we can do. It has very little to do with what you can do individually. It has everything to do with what we can do communally. And here's what I'm asking you to do. To next Sunday, come ready to experience the presence of God. To next Sunday, no matter what your week has been like, to come ready to meet with your brothers and sisters and give him the praise that is due his name. To come next Sunday, open hearts and minds to receive what God can do within his church. But don't stop there. What would it look like for us on an ongoing basis as a community of faith to love and to worship like this. Folks, it will change us. It will bless the world. It would give our children a perspective of life that God wants them to have. And we will grow. Let's bow our heads. Father, this morning... I confessionally say to you that I am not yet there, but I desire to be. I desire in my life that I would move beyond um, self-serving motives in so many of my relationships so that that hindrance would not keep me from knowing and experiencing and living by the love of Christ. 